Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the reshuffle and you ask us about Stephen's interview with Keir Starmer. So we're recording sort of in the aftermath of the main reshuffle events while junior posts are still being decided. Um, some of the biggest moves were Dominic Raab being moved from Foreign Secretary to Justice Secretary and being replaced by Liz Truss in that great office of state. So that was one of the biggest moves. And then something else that has got people's heads scratching is Nadine Doris as Culture Secretary. Um, and as well as that, Nadim Zahawi has gone from being the vaccinations minister to heading up the DFE. Um, what do you two make of it? You know, you've been you've been looking at some of the biggest moves. I think probably the the thing to think about first is actually how interesting it is that it even happened because this has been rumoured for quite a while that Boris Johnson knew he needed to have a reshuffle, had kind of planned one and there were points over the summer and also last week where it was definitely going ahead and then it looks as though he personally got cold feet so Stephen has had very strong views on this that maybe Boris Johnson would never get round to doing it, which even though disproven, I think is completely is completely true to what we have observed of him over the past few months, that this is a prime minister who doesn't really enjoy sacking people. I had a conversation with someone earlier talking about um, their a story they've heard about Boris Johnson trying to sack someone at The Spectator years ago when he was editor. And I think... He, he, he didn't end up sacking that person. It went, it went very differently. <laughs> Some of the story is redacted. But, um, and so I think it's, it's interesting that clearly he has decided to go for it and to risk ruffling a few feathers and cracking some eggs, basically, mainly to, to promote people who've been loyal to him, um, which is just such an interesting theme because the problem that Boris Johnson has faced is that he's seen as a winner by his party, but he doesn't have a team of, of sort of loyal people who've been with him for a long time or from, from a similar school of thought. He's sort of, he, he sort of borrows support from parts of the party um, and they, they lend it because they think he can continue winning. But we've seen him rewarding that loyalty. Um, so I think that's the first takeaway. Yeah, um Al, obviously, having doxxed the number of times in the, our office in Parliament when I would sometimes quite literally put down a phone to like someone in Downing Street, like, they're claiming there's going to be a reshuffle. Never going to happen. <laughs> Never. Because, as Alva says, right, it's not that those two earlier reshuffles were journalists getting their 
thing facts wrong or people getting it up. You know, the, the actual machinery of government had geared into reshuffle mode and he'd twice gone, oh no. And I, I, I think Al, Albert is exactly right. And one of the central things about this reshuffle, the really interesting thing is just not only that it happened, but the thing which links all of these people, right? Nadim Zahawi has been a Boris Johnson backer for essentially, the, I was about to say the whole of his, his time in Parliament. But actually, he was a backer of Boris Johnson when he was, you know, just like, you know, a very wealthy and successful businessman who was looking for a parliamentary seat and helping support you know, Boris Johnson's mayoral campaign. And I think in some ways, the important thing to understand about this reshuffle is in some ways it didn't it didn't start yesterday in two for two reasons. One, it didn't start yesterday because there were twice serious reshuffles where he went, okay, I know that we've marched everyone up the hill, but uh, do I really have to like do this? I prefer not to. Um, but also because um, in many ways this reshuffle begins with the moving of Kwasi Kwarteng to uh, Secretary of State for Business. Uh, why have I decided to try and give myself the essay question of remembering what BASE stands for? Let's just... The BASE, Secretary of State for BASE. Um, now, of course, Kwasi, again, is a, a long-term... Boris Johnson ally in what is a major delivery-focused department for them. Um, right. Cl- the climate crisis is obviously a major delivery-focused department because we will all die in the climate wars if we don't get this fixed. But it's a major delivery department electorally because one of the things we're lucky about in the United Kingdom is the overwhelming majority of voters know that we need to fix it and a large chunk of them really, really care about it. And then what he's done in this reshuffle is essentially, if you think about all of the big departments that decide elections, right? Pretty Patel, obviously, at Home, Home Secretary, he can't move her. She has an independent power base. I mean, I, you know, not, not to once again do my theory of, like, I don't, I don't care what the polls say. I, 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 I'm sure the polls are right to say that she's very unpopular on her own. And I think if she led them into an election, they might struggle. But she, I think, is an integral aspect of their sort of... I think having someone who people see as being so authoritarian and mean probably convinces like the median voter and they go, okay, well, they've got her. So actually they're probably slightly more reasonable than she, yeah. Yeah, could, he couldn't move Pretty Patel. So he's stuck with her at that major delivery department. This is why I think the junior post can be quite interesting because I imagine that we will see a sort of Johnsonite essentially there as Pretty's minder in that very important delivery folks department. Nadima, education, quality quartanga at base, as I've said. Truss, again, someone who had backed him, you know, very early doors in 2019, backed him in 2016, goes to the Foreign Office. But also, crucially, you can tell that he still maintains his sort of political allegiance to her because what he's also done is he's allowed her to maintain the women and equalities brief which will allow her to continue making her sallies into culture war issues allow her to roam freely across sort of the westminster brief and scene which will mean that she will be able to continue to continue her sort of meteoric rise and her you know establishing of herself as a real power player in tory politics and what it really reminded me of actually was um in 2001 tony blair put in his what he describes his four reforming ministers david blunkett stephen byers alan milburn estelle morris into education transport home affairs and another department health and he said i want you to be here till the end of the parliament because you are, you, you guys are going to do the stuff which gets me elected now the fun fact there is that none of the four did make it to the end of the parliament. So things can go wrong, but this is very much that type of reshuffle. Genuine Johnsonites in the delivery departments, you know, uh, as in a very good piece that, um, that Alva and I wrote, you know, someone said to one of us, you know, she is the de- of, of Liz Truss, she's a deliverer. And this is very much, you know, the march of the deliverers. Yeah, and I think Michael Gove being moved to housing is, is an interesting example of that as well, because 
I think there's been there's been a little bit of like confusion about what that move necessarily means because that department, MCLG, you know, communities, local government and housing doesn't sound glamorous. It doesn't sound sexy. When he was at the cabinet office, you know, he was across a range of different things. But I do think it's a sign of that reforming and also that that focus on, on the domestic agenda that's going to get Boris Johnson re-elected um, being played out with that move because someone like Michael Gove with a brief like that is going to be so different from Robert Jenrick. You know, he, he will have to bring sort of decisive action to that department, not only on the planning reforms and where they're going to actually build these houses, how they're going to level up without pissing off a lot of their voters, but also on the cladding crisis as well. That was part of a very big part of Robert Jenrick's bad reputation among the public as well. So it'll be interesting to see how Michael Gove grasps that brief, because I think he's got kind of like a cross-governmental role to deliver levelling up as well, which we all know there's a bit of confusion within government itself what that actually means. There's been this suggestion that it's actually about potential and opportunities and jobs rather than, you know, making individual places better. And I think in some of the focus grouping and the polling, ministers are starting to see that that what needs to happen is actually making the areas where people live look different and it's got to be tangible. It's not got to be about the sort of macro figures about jobs and skills. And so I think there's a suggestion there of putting, making the housing department the kind of levelling up department, putting Michael Gove in part in charge of that, suggests that they are leaning more towards the latter rather than the former. So hopefully we'll see, you know, in the next few weeks whether or not that confusion clears up. I'm confused by the Gove appointment and I think we kind of should be confused by it because you could interpret it two ways. So yesterday, quite early on in the reshuffle, a source who'd been right about pretty much everything said, I think Michael Gove will be going to MHCLG, the housing department. It's not a glamorous role, but I think he really wants it. He has stuff that he really wants to do there. And then that turned out to be completely true. But the bit that I'm unsure about is how much that is spin or sort of getting out ahead of the story and insisting that this is something that Michael Gove was seeking. I think that there was a genuine sense that he wanted a proper brief rather than the cabinet office role. But whether he wanted that brief is a kind of different story. And there's just a question as to you know, privately, what does Boris Johnson really think of Michael Gove? You know, does he see him as an ally or as a rival or both? And, you know, is this a sort of poison chalice, this department where there are so many huge challenges with the housing crisis, with the cladding crisis, that it's going to get worse unless it's really tackled? Or is this actually, you know, putting putting one of the people who who really does drive reform in whatever department he touches, putting one of maybe uh, on that level, one of the best cabinet performers in the difficult brief to sort it out? Maybe that's actually a really smart move. I'm still undecided on it. And I think, you know, you would just have to buy Michael Gove a few drinks or Boris Johnson a few drinks to see whether he deep down is happy with this new role. And also Boris Johnson deep down, whether he really trusts Michael Gove or not. Mm, I suppose it's like a big responsibility. It's basically delivering a manifesto commitment, isn't it? The levelling up stuff. So it suggests a respect for his skills as a minister. But at the same time, it ties his fate to quite a politically difficult thing to tackle. I was speaking to a senior Conservative who kind of sort of said, oh, they said, well, it's a perfect marriage, uh, which I put in the piece. But what I cut out was them saying, 
But we all know that some perfect marriages unravel when the couple realizes they want slightly different things. Because their point was, right, is it's a perfect marriage and it's a department which has a lot of stuff that conservatives would like reformed and you put Michael Gove anywhere and he does, you know, a lot of conservative reforming, right? That That is his thing. However, it does also take him out of this role where he was essentially, you know, kind of acting as, you know, the kind of, well, I mean, essentially as the de facto deputy prime minister, allowed him to have his fingers across a lot of pies. Now, even Michael Gove's allies will say to you, you know, I love Michael, but, you know, he loves nothing better than to roam across other people's briefs in, briefs in cabinet, you know, whether it was, you know, beefing with Theresa May over Trojan horse, beefing with, um, <laughs> would it been Jeremy Hunt then? Jeremy Hunt over education, where, yeah, if, sorry, over health when he was at education. Um, and so... It feels to me unlikely that part of this isn't about Boris Johnson's anxiety about, you know, the fact that Michael Gove is perceived as someone who always schemes. And what I think was interesting is, you know, before, before this reshuffle happened, I was talking to a close ally of Boris Johnson's and they said, you know, the thing I've basically seen in my time in politics is they said the, the schemers never prosper. They said, you know, Osborne would have been better off just trying to be a good chancellor if he'd been focused on being a good chancellor and not scheming, he wouldn't have done such a sort of punitive budget before the referendum, this person said, which was great news for us as leavers, but he shouldn't have done it, right? And they said, you know, Gavin Williamson spends all of his time scheming. He's a rubbish education secretary. And then the interesting other two names this person then said is they said, Rishi's spending too much time scheming. And they said, Michael spent too much time scheming education and always has a scheme on the go. So I think part of it is this feeling for you know for Boris and among his closest allies that Michael always has a scheme on the go and they would therefore like to curb him. And it's interesting that as the replacement in that, you know, helping the, this prime minister with some of the administrative stuff and he doesn't have perhaps the kind of flair and passion for that we usually associate with the PM, is Steve Barclay, who mm. is ultimately a wholly owned subsidiary of Boris Johnson. Not, not in a like he's a particularly loyal kind of way, but, you know, if Steve Barclay was sacked tomorrow, the Conservative backbenches would not sort of rise up. So it exactly allows Boris Johnson to have someone who can be his representative on earth, who he's not going to be frightened about giving him that power. So essentially, one of the problems that anyone in that brief has is Jenrick's tenure was basically like watching someone run around a like firework factory, lighting little sort of matches on on timer strings. And now he's sort of, and now you're like, like Michael, like, hey, good luck in the factory. Because you say there's there's leasehold, there's cladding scandal, there, there is just a whole bunch of very difficult things. And you can easily see how, from Boris's perspective, it is a perfect marriage, right? If Michael Gove can turn his administrative eye to fixing these problems, great. But should Michael Gove's career be caught in the explosion? That's not such a bad thing for Boris Johnson. I thought it was interesting what you said about Steve Barclay, actually, because moving the chief secretary to the treasury now is quite a weird move in my eyes because we've got the spending review coming up in autumn and you know you saw robert buckland the who was the justice secretary until yesterday in his resignation letter he basically made a big dig saying you know justice does there's no price for justice you should invest in it more and it's been really unhelpful how underfunded it's been for years um and so you'll have all of these new ministers moving into these departments which we know according to, you know, the most recent budget and according to what we know about the upcoming budget are facing sort of day-to-day cuts in their spending. Um, So, you know, I don't know what you think, and maybe this is too conspiratorial, but is this sort of a move on Johnson's part or like a convenient um, sort of side effect on Boris Johnson's part of this reshuffle that you will have these new ministers who won't be able to be there defending their budgets in quite the way that ministers who have been embedded in their departments like Robert Buckland would have been able to do in the coming weeks? especially with Steve Barclay not not there anymore and and that position changing as well. Steve Barclay 
is slash was regarded as one of the real kind of the last remaining Asterians in the parliamentary party. Obviously, the, the budget itself is quite austere, but, you know, most of them are austerity nimbies, right? They go, you know, yes, 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 taxes must not rise. Yes, 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 debt must fall. My leisure centre? Is that a joke? Um, yeah, it's not the first time that there's been a reshuffle midway through a CSR, but um, I think actually the real reason was just that they delayed twice and then if they were going to do it before conference, they were sort of running out of time and clearly it was very much a kind of, okay, you know, we are... He, he, he clearly resolved he was, you know, going to put his hand in the, in the briar patch. But I think you're right... To, to single it out because one of the things which you remember that period right at the start of the coalition when they just like agreed to a bunch of like obviously highly unpopular cuts yeah like you know the selling off of forests you know the various kind of that very difficult first year they had yeah in, from in cash terms all of the money that would have been raised by those really unpopular cuts happened but most of those year one cuts didn't well why did that happen because you had a bunch of new ministers who kind of went oh yeah sure that that seems like a good way we're all new here i'll settle with the treasury fairly quickly yeah. i think then it feels to me that what this has done even though you know there is in no government there is no greater spending department than than, than number 10 downing street and particularly in a boris johnson-led conservative government there's no greater spending department than downing street so i don't think he'll have sat there going oh this will make rich's life easier let's you know let's do this i think you've like we've got to do it at some point but i think this hugely increases the chances that someone will sign off a cut that they really really shouldn't have done right they, i think the chances and you know they will yeah and again you know, only 2010 fans will remember this then they will try and sell off some forests or you know something else and just obviously not a good idea politically um i think it does increase the sort of already quite high risk rating than the csr has for this government and one last thing i think we should discuss before we move on to the next section is nadine doris and what it says about um boris johnson's focus on um you know squeezing the culture war kind of <laughs> uh, I don't know what's it, the, the cultural sponge. Um, you know, she's someone who has said controversial things in the past that are now being resurfaced by people on social media. And she doesn't usually apologise for, for the things that she says. Um, and, you know, I mean, when I interviewed her a very, very long time ago, I remember she was sort of, and it's similar with lots of these ministers who have been successful under the Johnson government. Um, she was sort of seen as like an eccentric, an outsider who would, you know, who would sort of um, throw pot shots to the inside, you know, calling David Cameron and George Osborne posh boys who don't know the price of milk, but also just generally being a sort of very much an independent eccentric character. And I feel like Liz Truss and some of those other free marketeers had that reputation as well. So it's, you know, just as an aside, it's interesting seeing them being at the heart of power now. Um, but I wonder what you think of her appointment. Do you think this, this shows that Boris Johnson is sort of wholeheartedly heartedly leaning into the culture warrior stuff that Oliver Dowden was doing in that in that post but even more so. I mean I think you're completely right that even when she was appointed as health minister I think that there were real questions as to whether she would be able to do that job I think because people had really just seen her as kind of crazy pretty much like just to, just to be blunt about it especially as you say there were so many sort of digs on Twitter and kind of eccentric comments that was always the way she was seen and I actually think she has impressed people as a minister. Like she didn't do a bad job in that health brief. And I mean, certainly when you look at the performance across government, I think that it, yeah, she's thought to have done an okay job, basically. Then it actually comes back to what we began the podcast on, which is Boris Johnson basically rewarding people who have supported him from early on. He doesn't have very much of that. 
And I'm sure that it's lonely in the top job, especially if you're someone like Boris Johnson who doesn't have much of a natural power base. So I think rewarding people like that as you move into the trickier part of your term in government makes sense. There is now a lot of a lot of actually administrative stuff in in, you know, digital you know, in DCMS, which now includes its weird silent D of, of you know, digital as well as department. Um, yeah, so it has the whole of like the sort of digital transition stuff. It has all of the stuff about Channel Four, it has a whole whole bunch of stuff about culture. And yeah, if if you imagine this reshuffle as kind of a game of you first have to select out MPs for whom, you know, like have they been successful administrators in their departments? And then you're also then going, you know, were they people who backed Boris Johnson in 2016 and 2019? Or were they people in the kind of, you know, I would rather chop my arm off than have him be prime minister? I'm sorry, wait, the the what? The Brexit party have taken how many votes in my seat? <laughs> so anyway, um, let me talk about chopping off this arm. Like, <laughs> if you imagine that that's sort of the exercise, right? Nadine Doris is kind of inevitably a name in the frame there. I do also think, however, this does show that he has made a pretty clear decision about wanting to position himself um, uh, yeah, and this government to be sort of active uh, on cultural topics because, yeah, Oliver Dowden uh, moves from DCMS to the party chair and with some sort of additional cabinet office responsibility, so therefore further, you know, breaking up the Govian Empire. But he, again, is someone who very much has been really happy to do that and that is very much where Oliver Dowden's personal politics are. So I think then this does show that the government... Yeah, he's in terms of yeah, the various things we be about, you know, the prime ministers in two minds. Dancing Tony, he's much happier doing the easy cultural stuff than the more kind of contentious, like, knee, you know, taking a knee stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a pretty decisive choice on his part to go, look, this is a government that will be culture warry. And also the way, if you think of, of this sort of culture war approach as being kind of spearheaded by Manira Mirza in number 10, who's a so close ally of Boris Johnson has given this a lot of thought. The way it's always described and her thinking on it is that the Conservative government wants to sort of pitch themselves as the common sense people Mm. on culture wars things. And I wonder if, for all that we were sort of saying a minute ago about how Nadine Doris is seen as a bit eccentric, the difference between her and Oliver Dowden is I think that there was a real feeling of of Oliver Dowden sort of leaning into this stuff and thinking like, here's our strategy. And so I'm going to stick my oar in here and here and here and say that this is outrageous. Sometimes at points where it didn't feel entirely necessary. And I'm wondering if the approach envisioned by Manira Mirza is best embodied by someone like Nadine Dorries, who will, I think, quite instinctively be like, that's ridiculous, we shouldn't be tearing this statue down, da, da, and who will be able to sort of do media rounds on it and it will, it will just be entirely from her natural political instincts and so it'll you'll get probably roughly the same thing as you were getting with Oliver Dowden but maybe with a more authentic spokesperson If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too then why not subscribe to the New Statesman you can get 12 weeks for £12 go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12 Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. So today's question is um, actually aimed at Stephen, but we'll all discuss it. You've interviewed Keir Starmer for this week's magazine. Um, and so our readers just want to know sort of what you learned from him and what you did with him and what it was like. Um, so you kind of went on the road with him as part of his tour of getting around the country, which he was doing over the summer. And I think one someone that you spoke to, a Labour MP, said it was his self-criticism tour. <laughs> yeah, this, the self-criticism tour, um, which, yeah, it was... Yeah, so I went on the road with him for a, a you know a day in, in Swindon. He's doing these three day visits. He did visits like this when he um, became head of the Crown Prosecution Service. He genuinely does seem to get a lot out of them. Yeah, clear. Well, it's one of those weird things. Where I don't. I'm not going to lie and say that I came away with a clearer personal understanding of why he enjoys doing this. But yeah, he very much is like, yeah, this is yeah, as he explained in the piece, and he's yeah, kind of <laughs> this is about yeah, getting that getting the idea. Yeah. Did you have test- a bad time in Swindon, Stephen? <laughs> I mean I'm just I'm not really an early morning person. Please do subscribe to my free morning email. <laughs> um, I'm not really a morning person. And I guess also I am um, I suspect it's actually one of the, the, the ancient journalist and political politician divides, right? Politicians are people people, right? They like being out and about. I think actually the list of politicians who I you're not left more impressed by up close is you know it's basically a list which you know I was about to like make a potentially libelous joke about you know it ends with someone's first name and starts with <laughs> their sur- and ends with their surname but it's been, basically I don't think I would be able to come up with a list of more than five and you know if if you know more than five million people subscribe to my Patreon for my legal fees <laughs> I will name all five. Um, but I'm very much not a people person, uh, and I therefore, you know, find so you know, oh, you know, oh, you know, you're angry with the Labour Party. I mean, yeah, okay, cool. I mean, isn't everyone? But yeah, he, yeah, it was about yeah him going around, you know, talking about his ideas, preparing for for the conference season, talking about his political thought, just trying to get a sense of you know, kind of the question. And I think it is fair to say is still a bit of enigma to most people, which is you know, like who is Keir Starmer? What's he about? You know, what's his approach? Can it possibly work? You know, all that jazz. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, I spent time with Simon Swindon. I interviewed him sort of afterwards talking about the various things we heard. And then, you know, then the result um, after uh, really the real victim of this piece has been Alva, who obviously chairs an office with me in Parliament and has had to deal an awful lot of me, like, sometimes groaning and passing my laptop over and going, <laughs> how is this bad, Jim? Sometimes, yeah, like, just not even word, just like... <laughs> shoving it along um but yeah so that that's that's you know, the end the key i think the thing i think was interesting about it is uh, um i did feel at the end that i had a better idea of um what he stood for than i did at the beginning um unkind listeners may want to go like that wouldn't have been difficult but the thing i think is interesting is it, it does feel really millibandy as in ed obviously yeah and now now um you know his ratings are now, you know, once again, you know, entering the Cameron zone. They are, you know, significantly better than Ed Miliband. He obviously has a load of political advantages that Ed Miliband didn't have. So 
I accept that it's arguable than a more effective Labour machine, you know, a leader with a stronger chin. And, you know, also, right, the fact that we have had a decade more of cuts, the climate crisis is worse, right? I I accept that it's possible that that approach can work. And from an intellectual perspective, I'm quite interested to see if it can, right? (laughs) But, um, you know, I mean, I I imagine, you know, you, Anoush, is like another, another person in this office who, you know, best the scars of covering that period probably like you like a little bit dubious but i you know i was yes say it's very hard not to be impressed like by by most politicians up close and he was you know he did not become number six on that entry so okay yeah so yeah i mean going back to the Millibandy thing i think it was interesting because you asked him a question that he didn't like uh, in your interview which was are you more like tony blair or jeremy corbyn which is a really good question because he takes elements of both doesn't he and of course your conclusion was that he was more Millibandy. how did he react to you sort of suggesting that that was his more of his kind of tradition Although I realised the way I've written it, it seemed like he kind of like, you know, kind of curled up his nose. Yeah, the, the bit where he got kind of sort of angry and grumpy was actually the sort of, um, he got very angry and grumpy several times about, um, you know, not, actually not really me, but the idea that, you know, people kind of go like, I know you all say that this thing about Boris Johnson is priced in, but, you know, it shouldn't be, um, which, you know, it's not unreasonable. But the thing he actually, you know, got sort of kind of objected to uh, was when I went, but look, isn't Kwasi Kwarteng saying a lot of these? And he kind of, you know, interjected and went, well, he's doing sod all. Um, and was, you know, like very sort of forceful about the fact he was doing sod all. But with that, he was actually, he was just like, well, look, I people ask me this all the time. I just think the context is really different. And then, you know, obviously at that point, we'd spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time watching him talking to like various people on this tour. And, you know, his, his sort of preoccupations and he would be returning to over and over again were, the quality of work rather than the quantity, right? Essentially, okay, yeah, there's there's a lot of job vacancies in the United Kingdom, but they ain't good jobs. The climate crisis and mental health, which, of course, everyone forgets that Ed Miliband was the first party leader to say, look, this is actually, you know, the, the, the great untackled health challenge of our time. And so I kind of said, well, look, these things are obviously very important to you. These things were, if you asked someone to give them the sort of potted precy of the Miliband project, they would be it. That story ended in defeat. Why is yours going to end any differently? And he just once again responded with the same answer he gave, which is, well, I think the context is different, which is arguable. But what I think is interesting about it is that the thing which really, you know, if you if you want to give someone on the right of the Labour Party a seizure, you just like, you know, walk up to them and kind of whisper in their ear, Ed Miliband was just ahead of his time. He was too early. And they're like, it wasn't too early. He was just wrong. And I I think it did feel very much to me than his answer, yeah, kind of in a more sort of diplomatic, I lead a party where I know that there are people whose support I need to keep on side, you know, do sort of break out in hives when you suggest Ed Miliband was, you know, just too early. Um, but I think it did feel very much in his argument, well, we're all, con- you know, the, the challenges you face is different in different contexts. Is basically going, well, look, yeah, but like, what's that bit in Back to the Future? Maybe you're not ready for this song yet, but your kids are going to love it, right? It's yeah. very much sort of that with, with you know, the kind of centrepiece approaches of the Miliband era. And that's so interesting as, as well that you mentioned the um, Keir, Keir Starmer's response to you mentioning Quasi Quarteng taking up some of those causes from the Miliband era and the way he said, oh, he's, well, he's, you know, he's doing sod all about it and getting angry because, I mean, readers can go and look. That's exactly 
how Ed Miliband, not the same words, but pretty much the same words to the same issue when I interviewed Ed Miliband a few months ago. You know, I think Ed Miliband said something like Quasi Quarteng has had a Damascene conversion to workers' rights, but he's going to do nothing <laughs> about it. Don't know, how, don't know how I wrote it in the piece. But, you know, very similar to Keir Starmer's response. And I just thought that was so telling uh, you know, a few paragraphs after you were exploring the question of how similar Keir Starmer was to Ed Miliband, because I completely accept that maybe most Labour politicians would respond that way if you get onto that topic. But I think that that is just, you know, that is the fruit of clearly a lot of conversations between Keir Starmer and Ed Miliband. I would just be very comfortable concluding that. I think you see that all the time with um, politicians. You can see like little phrases peppered across one person's speech because they speak a lot to another person and I wonder if it's if it's a moment like that that the presence of Ed Miliband in the shadow cabinet is really interesting you know that we're having this conversation about whether he is like Ed Miliband but Ed Miliband is right there right at the center of it kind of trying not to make a fuss and um, and you know trying not to not to become the face of this but, you know, he's still quite central to, to this project. And so this idea, it's not its not just the style, but in the substance or even the, the quite literal people involved. And Milliman's still involved in this project. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question I wanted to ask you, Stephen, about this was, I mean, there's quite a lot on this in the piece, but is your impression after Keir Starmer's first year that he thinks he has learned some lessons from, for example, how Hartlepool went, how that reshuffle went, not just in terms of he clearly knew that he had to take action of some kind, but even the way that action didn't go quite right. Do you think that there's a there's an awareness there of things that he could have done better? I think the two things I was really struck by is one is kind of like fairly sort of, yeah, sort of rock solid certainty, right? There's, there's yeah, let's face it, right? There's an incredible amount of bad air around this project in Westminster and sort of in the the kind of general narrative. Now, it's true to say that in the polls, that bad air does seem to be lessening a bit, although given that I think it is also hard to argue that that lessening has anything to do with anything the Labour Party has said or done, I wouldn't necessarily expect anyone to gain any additional confidence from that one way or the other. But he has this incredible sort of, yeah, calmness and almost stillness about him. Yeah, this kind of like, I'm going to set this out in my time. I'm going to do this. But of course, some of the things that he wants to do differently are very much things that he has directly reflected on them having gone wrong, right? So yeah, there is absolutely this kind of weird paradox of, you know, kind of incredible sort of calmness. Yeah, one person, you know, one shadow cabinet ally said to me, you know, he's clearly, yeah, he said, he clearly feels, they said, he clearly feels so much better because he feels like he has, you know, better people around him. He's in a calmer, more, you know, he's in a better place. But of course, if one feels better about having better people around you when you hired both sets of people, you've had to do some reflecting on like how you ended up in that position. Not least that, um, is it an episode of the NS podcast where we talk about Labour if we don't come round to the Shadow Chancellor issue? I think, you know, I think even he would he well, would acknowledge that um, the fact that they, you know, that they made a bunch of appointments and it turned out that where they weren't as politically aligned as they perhaps thought they were is a bit of a reflection on him. So, yeah, he is, um, you know, I mean, I really didn't want to use the cliche older but wi- older and wiser, partly because, yeah, I, mean, why, I always feel wiser implies a level of, of finality than, than perhaps uh, might turn out to be discredited by events. But, yeah, I think he is aware that, um, yeah, it's been a learning experience 
still found someone very early on in their political uh, their political life, really, in lots of ways, which kind of always weirds me out. Um, but yeah, it was this kind of sense, and he'd kind of gone, actually, yeah, reshuffle could have been handled better. The approach in the year one could have been handled better. And now, of course, he thinks and he has, you know, got the secret source and then you know we're all going to see a, a different side as you know he kept using the phrase opening up right as yeah as society opens up politics opens up yeah he you know does have this kind of yeah incredible sense of confidence as i say as the final thing the question is is we're all going to discover is is this sense of confidence well earned well it's a great interview and it's in the print magazine this week um where readers can find the full write-up and also um there's a great photo at the beginning and also a sort of a fun inset picture with the full spectrum of Keir Starmer emotion. Yeah, <laughs> there are about, yeah. <laughs> about like 20 small pictures of him with various expressions. So it's worth buying the print magazine just for that alone. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Kellyan, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com upgrade. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.